Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to the Intercooler Podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 155 of the Intercooler Podcast with Dan Prosser, my co-host Andrew Frankel. Now, this week, it's a good topic. We're talking about going very, very fast in production cars. We're talking about production car top speed records. Um, and joining us, we've got Andy Wallace a little bit later on. He comes in halfway through the episode um, because he is the man who set the production car uh, speed record in the McLaren F1 and in the Bugatti Chiron. Um, so arguably no one alive knows more than him about going very, very fast in production cars. Um, we were supposed to stick to production cars only, but of course Andy Wallace is a Le Mans winner. Um, Andrew is a Le Mans obsessive, so of course we get sidetracked a little bit. But uh, this is a great episode. Andy Wallace is just such good value. Um, I think you're really going to enjoy this one. So please rate and review the podcast if you do. Um, that helps us a lot. And also, wherever you listen to the podcast, hit the follow or subscribe button. That helps so much. And it just helps us find a bigger audience and do more with the podcast. So thank you for listening. Andrew, as we're recording this, it is the 31st of March, 2023. It's mm -hmm. a Friday. It is. Um, that means to the day, it is precisely 25 years since the McLaren F1 broke the production car top speed record um, at Aerolessian in Germany yeah. um, when it achieved a two-way average of 240.1 miles per hour um, with a certain Andy Wallace driving, friend of the... A Instagram. certain very brave Andy Wallace yeah. driving. And actually, I'm delighted to say that a little bit later on, Andy's joining us on the podcast to talk about... Going that, fast. Going fast to talk about his record Few runs. people in the world better qualified to talk about going fast than Andy Wallace because no. it's not just... I mean, he's gone a lot faster than that since, hasn't he? He's gone a hell of a lot faster than that since. Yeah. He's gone through 300. So we'll come to that a bit later on. Um, it's going to be fascinating to hear Andy 
talk about that. Um, on that day in 1998, March 31st, 1998, um, he achieved a peak speed of 242.956 miles per hour. But for these things to be a record, they have to be um, run in both directions, don't they? So they take a two-way average. For it to be an official record, yeah, to eliminate any benefit you've got from gradient or wind. Wind, yeah. Uh, the, official, yeah. Yeah, the official thing is that, you know, this is the same with whether you're doing that or your land speed record breaking it on Bonneville Salt Flats. It's got to be in both directions um, within an hour. Yes, within, which within is, an hour. Which, yeah, which okay. is probably quite easy if you're driving a McLaren F1. Less easy if you're driving something powered by a rocket or a jet or yeah. both. Um, well, it's the same for that's right. It's the same for land speed record stuff, isn't it? Um, yeah, it is. Yeah. When Absolutely. Bloodhound was running, and when uh, what was the car before that? Thrust SSC. Thrust, thr- thrust SSC, and then Thrust yeah. Two before that. Yeah, and all. Yeah. So, so they had to turn around and go again. Um, that's yeah. just the way it is. Yeah. Um, so anyway, Andy's coming on later on. Um, it is incidentally the reason Charles Rolls is not a land speed record holder. Because, he because he, Charles, you know, nobody knows that Charles Rolls of Rolls Royce broke the land speed record, except he didn't because he only did it in one direction. Somewhere in Nottinghamshire, somebody's front drive. Really? Yeah, in about 908. He was a, he was a dude. But anyway, that's, a, that's a, <laughs> maybe we'll do another podcast about him. Um, okay. But yes, right. Sorry. Back to, uh, back to Andy driving really fast. So he's, he's an authority on driving really, really fast. But I suspect you've gone quick. Yeah, I have. Well, the thing is, I, I know you have in, in the same car. Yeah. So... Um, Yes, and uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, uh, so the first time I ever went above two hundred, I went quite a bit above two hundred, and it wasn't a McLaren F one. Mm. Um, it was that it was that day which we talked about on this podcast a few times when we road tested the car. Yeah, um, and the excuse was we wanted to get acceleration figures from one hundred and eighty to two hundred miles an hour because that had never been done before an in gear figure, mm. fifth gear. I can't remember what it was actually, um, but it wouldn't it wouldn't have taken very long. Um, and once we sort of got there, I just thought, well, I'll just keep going. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and see what we can get to and it did 211 um and that was the first time uh and it, and it was quite interesting because it was an early prototype and uh the little wing that's meant to flip up didn't um and actually it was all right getting up to that speed although it did feel awfully fast um the slowing down was the interesting bit because as soon as i came off the gas I mean, you're not going to do anything stupid like break as hard as you can at that sort of speed. So you just gently ease off the gas. But even that little change in pitch um, mm. with that inherent instability caused by whatever it was not flipping up um, did cause it to sort of, yes, um, use, <laughs> use quite a lot of the, uh, the width of the runway as well, of its, oh. as well as its length. Bloody hell. Um, I mean, it wasn't, I wasn't sort of fighting or anything because, you, you know, if you're sensible, you don't fight that. You just think, mm. well, I've got this much space, so I'll let it use it all the time, knowing you're shedding speed. And sooner or later, it'll sort itself out, which it did. Well, it was, it was, it was quite interesting, but only really because we were going so unbelievably fast. Um, not because it was inherently particularly dramatic. It just wandered a bit. But, yeah, it certainly mm. got my attention. Bloody hell. Mm. Um, so, the, yeah, branting thought. But I wonder how many particularly uk car journalists have set their own top speeds at bruntingthorpe i certainly did um a few years ago in a modified 997 turbo uh, i get i think it had more than 700 horsepower so actually more powerful than the mclaren f1 yeah um and without particularly meaning to you know just set off from one end foot down through the gears um and saw an indicated 200 before backing out so yeah if it's it's indicated and it's a Porsche, that's 200 do you think well, oh, probably. I it, well, I think I think you can claim it. I think you can claim it. <laughs> I've certainly claimed it indicated in a couple of other things. I mean, okay, so the McLaren was absolutely um, 
we didn't have timing equipment on the car, um, but I could. But what we had done is we'd calibrated the speedo before. We knew that the speedo mm. was absolutely pin, so you mm. could trust it. Um, yeah, you, yeah, 200, you've done it. If it All says right. it, you've done it. I'm claiming that then. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and it was... But you, you didn't even take a run-up. So no. I mean, with, with, with the McLaren... I got on. I was doing seventy or eighty. So around the corner, around the bottom corner. Yeah, yeah. Before, yeah, before they sort of tightened it and sort of spot the wind, you could really bloody hoof it around there. Mm. Um, and yeah, so I was I was doing plenty before I even got onto the runway. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's the way you do it, isn't it? If you want to really go fast at the end. Um, and it was the thing in, in that turbo, that nine eleven turbo. It was just so effortless. Just foot down through the gears, um, and it was rock solid. You know, it didn't wander at all. And when I lifted off. Just lifted off and then squeezing on the brakes, and it all just, it just shed speed in a straight and true. It was amazing. And the, of course, the funny thing is, as you're slowing down, you're just about ready to undo your seatbelt and open the door. And you're still you doing 120. Yeah, you're still <laughs> clipping along. You lose your sense of speed, don't you? Having you gone do. really, really fast, it just you totally do. skews your perception. I, um, I can remember this is this is a slightly different conversation. I can remember we, I did some. I, took part in what turned out to be a successful world record attempt for the longest distance ever driven at the highest speed, which we did at, in Saab turbos in Talladega 30 wow. years ago. Um, I, think they, I think the cars averaged over 150 miles an hour for a week. Um, but when we went out there, so there, there, were, lots of us, yeah, there were lots of us doing it. Um, and I, you know, I, only, I was only out there for a day. But what they did, they said exactly that. They said, you're going to be out there for as long as you, know, you have fuel in your tank averaging over 150 miles an hour so when you come in when you think you've actually stopped you'll still be doing 40 mm. and if you don't pay a lot of attention to that you're going to kill the jackman oh my god <clears throat> and it's the one thing they said you know you know when, when you're out there out there your, your drivers you know what you're doing fill your boots you know we're not really going to talk to you about that but we are going to talk to you about mm. just what you're just what going that fast for that long does to your brain when oh, you come in bloody hell Mm. yeah it's a bizarre thing it's a really bizarre thing um, it's, it's interesting isn't it i mean I, like to me the whole business of going fast depends entirely on your environment mm. you know we've all done 600 miles an hour at forty thousand feet and nobody thinks about it do they? Yeah, yeah yeah i've done i can remember trying to do a ma- abandoning a max speed test on a thing called a tvr vas which was the old you know pre tasman tvr um the tamer turbo sort of chassis mm. and but they put the rover v8 in it towards the end of its life so this one i would have been this is probably in the late 80s when i first got into motoring journalism and being so scared in that thing at 145 on the milbrook bowl that i just literally i just gave up didn't bother anymore <laughs> yeah um whereas when i set the whatever the uk record production car lap record was in a 512 tr ferrari at 175 didn't trouble me at all mm-hmm. car was absolutely rock solid and you know and, and like your experience at, at Bruntingthorpe I've been there I did it I was there in an event not that long ago and I just wanted to do 200 and it was oh okay doing 200 is never boring but it was so much closer to boring than anyone who's not done 200 could ever possibly imagine <laughs> you just sit there wait for the numbers to come up and then you slow down I didn't and know you'd done that if you're in a car that. that is absolutely I mean, and when I drove the Veyron Supersport, mm. um, which is my which is my max speed, I think I did two seventeen in that. Totally undramatic, and there was quite a bit. There was quite a side wind blowing that way, so they, so they wouldn't let us use the sort of the, the low drag top speed trim. Oh, 
And it still did 217, and it still stopped. Where was that? That was Bruntingthorpe as well. Bloody hell. Yeah. Yeah, that's fast for Bruntingthorpe. Except, except, (laughs) except I can remember watching our newest recruit, Steve Sutcliffe, Mm. do 203 in an XJ220 Jaguar. Yeah. I'm being properly scared because that was that was dramatic because the car the car kind of did it but only just um, and it was it kept him very busy whereas in in the Bugatti I can't tell you I think it was like a 30 mile an hour crosswind and it just sat there it just sat there straight down the middle of the runway no worries at all yeah. well that's that's one of the one that, one of the things I want to talk to Andy about which one which of his amazing records was actually harder to do um so now i I want to trot through some of the the history of um production car top speed records now to some extent you're going to have to bear with me here because clearly not all of them are official records not all were were done with accurate timing not all were done some were cheating some were cheating um some of the years depending on where you look even the years are a bit different and you know, you, you compare two lists and they look totally different. So there's a little bit of fudging it going on here. But we'll get a feel um, for how the, the how the, the numbers evolved. Won't how we? it evolved, yeah. So you could say that it really kicked off in 1949 with the Jaguar XK120, so yeah. called because it would do 120 miles an hour. In fact, <laughs> would it? <laughs> well, according to this, 124.6. But do you think that was a... Well, particularly I, I, I don't actually know about the XK120, but I know how much they cheated with the E-Type. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> how did they cheat? Uh, they put a D-Type engine in it. Okay, it wasn't quite a D-Type engine in it, but it was... Yeah, so the E-Type was legendarily the first car to do 150 miles an hour, and it did 150.1, and I think both autocar and motor, as was then, got like exactly the same speed out of it. I don't know whether there was a bit of funny business with the journos, whether they knew mm. just how not standard that car was 9600 hp philip porter owns it now he calls it the most famous car in the world <laughs> not sure that i've blown it up it's one of my claims to fame i'm oh blown like, tr- trying to do trying to i think i blew it up at about 147 trying to do 150 in it around millbrook um, but all, <laughs> the, all the oil went up went under the engine and that was it um but yeah so it, it was a sort of semi-race engine it had in it and it was on race tires um mm. so certainly in any modern uh, what's the word? Um, anyone trying to do that today, you'd have just been laughed out of court. You'd have just mm, said, "Well, yeah, that's yeah. not that's not a production car. It's not even close." But back then, um, it was it was just a great story, wasn't it? You know, yeah. E-Type does hundred. Yeah. And, and you know, and I've driven a few XK one twenties with that three point four liter. How much power would it have had back then? One hundred and sixty horsepower. Not very. One hundred and twenty miles an hour, maybe. Mm perhaps maybe and actually i'm glad you mentioned tires because the point of this of them being production cars is that they should be on normal road tires not normal road tires they should be on road tires that you can go out and buy um sticking on racing tires is a cheat um because every component has to be capable of that speed including the tires yeah um so we move on mid 50s mercedes-benz 300 sl yeah 140 now, you see, that I think is honest. Yeah. I've seen all sorts of figures about that car. I thought you were going to say 155, which I think is the most often quoted top speed for that car. Um, and that's cobblers. 
Uh, and there's no way yeah. that a standard SL would do that. But I think 140 is actually bang on. Probably about right. I, I would, they were so slippery, those cars. If you drive one um, and you just sort of cruise along and just take your foot off the accelerator, mm. it just doesn't slow down. Really? It just keeps going. Because it's got, you've got very little rolling resistance on those skinny little tyres. Mm. And they're so slippery. Mm. You wouldn't believe how aerodynamically efficient they were for 1954 when they came out. So, you know, yeah. I believe that. I absolutely believe that. And do you know what's amazing is that this was in 1955. Yeah. Um, so call that about half the lifetime of the car ago. Um, now, what could you do 140 miles in miles per hour in now? I bet there's a Golf. Not even a particular. No, okay, let's say there's a. There's probably a VW Passat, isn't there? That will do oh, that. Yeah, I'm or sure. I'm sure. Something along those lines. Something very everyday. Not particularly sporting, but with a bit of go. Um, what, 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 would a, what would a Fiesta ST do? It'd be, yeah, probably that. One, it'd be in the one, late 130s, wouldn't it? Something like that, yeah. Isn't yeah. that amazing? Yeah. <laughs> it is extraordinary how these things progress. Um, and then we're into the 60s, and there were several cars that broke the records. Mura, Daytona. Well, yeah, E-Type first of all, allegedly. E-Type, E-type first of all, yeah. yeah. The Daytona, I think, is that down to 174? Yes, yeah, I think, that's on, probably, yeah. I, think, I think that's probably... Actually, given how much smoke and mirrors was coming out of Italy at that time, uh, I think that's probably pretty close. I think that's probably... I, I don't know about the Mura. Yeah. Um, but well, I the, think the Mura here is saying 171. Yeah, well, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. But, but the Daytona, um, which I've driven, yeah, I can, I can believe something a nudge mm. above 170 given a very, very long piece of road. Are you going to talk about the Boxer next? Uh, well, it's not on this list, but okay. the 288 GTO is. Okay, that's a bit later. So in the Boxer, in the, the original 4.4-litre Boxer, when that came out, well, it was shown in 71, went on sale in 73. Ferrari claimed 188 for that. <laughs> not a prayer. Well, Not a prayer. That's what I've got uh, down here for the 288 GTO in 84. Yeah, well, so. actually, by, by then, I think they were having to be, you know, there, there's, there's, you know, there's 10, no, there's not, yeah, there is, there's 10 years between those cars. Uh, and those are, in terms of what you could get away with saying, mm. you know, back then, Ferrari said the Boxer had 380 horsepower. It didn't. They said it would do 188. It wouldn't. <laughs> it wouldn't. <laughs> um, I think Motor road tested a Boxer. And I don't know whether it was a 4.4 or a 5 litre, but I think it stopped at 163. I think, they, I think they maxed it and they did 100. Now, I think they also said it might not have been a very good one, but you know, yeah. I, I don't, I've never seen anything to make me think that a boxer, in terms of its top speed, is any quicker than a Daytona. Yeah. I so love how crooked it was back then. 70s. Sorry? So crook- I love how crooked it was back then. Just making stuff up. Assuming well, nobody would ever find out. I don't think we can say that, can we? Maybe we can. Um, <laughs> I mean, just, just, just sort of ex- accentuating the positive, you know. Yeah, well, okay. Read between the lines. Um, <clears throat> Porsche 959, yeah. 197 miles per hour. Yeah, I think, but by all, I th- all, all these ones, if they're official manufacturer claims, I think they probably had to certify these things by this stage. So, well, yeah. What's interesting here is that the F40 comes next, and I've got 201.4. Yes. <laughs> Not quite. I've, I've got it to, uh, to three decimal uh, places. I've got 202.687. Oh, really? Which sounds accurate enough to be <laughs> official, doesn't it? You yeah, but, 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 it. Okay, but, but, you know, but back then... Uh, but it was the did... first 200-mile-an-hour car, wasn't it? F40? Yeah. yeah, it was the first car. Well, I mean, people would say that, you know, you, you, you saw all sorts of claims about all sorts of things. Vectors. Do you remember? You probably don't remember Jerry no, Vigot's yeah, yeah, Vector. Yeah. Do you remember that? Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, the F40, I think, is absolutely the first car which no one would dispute was capable of 200 miles an hour. Mm. If you got a good one. 
you know you, know, you also have to remember that that was was there 40 35 years God, no th- yeah 35 years ago yeah you know production tolerances weren't then what they are now if you got a good one yeah. you know yeah, absolutely yeah I, 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 a, a a good production standard f40 would do 200 miles an hour i don't doubt that and there's no questioning that that's a production car not like something no. like a vector no which is debatable no. and actually if you drive an f40 which you will do yes and you, you drive an f40 and, and you just see how utterly bonkers they are you actually think it, it actually in you know although i've never done anything near that sort of speed in one you're kind of a bit surprised it's that low <laughs> Uh, okay, so we're into the 90s, Bugatti EB110. 209 miles per hour, apparently. Can you believe that? Yeah, yeah probably. Probably, yeah. No, I mean, I, you, it's all about aero at that sort of speed, isn't it? I just don't yeah. know how slippery those cars were. Yeah. Um, but the XJ220s, that's in there, presumably? Yeah, it is. So, um, again, it's like the XK120. The 220 refers to approximate top speed. So what number would you have for the, off the top of your head for the XJ220? Because I thought it was high. 213 is in my head. Yeah, okay, it does say 213. I, think, I, I think thought they did 17 at some point. Well, I think, you know, and I think they did, and I think Martin Brundle was driving at Fort Stockton in Texas, and if Martin has, is, is listening to this, maybe he can correct me. My memory says they did it at Fort Stockton in Texas. It was a standard car, but I think they took the cats off it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that might have been on race rubber as well, just for safety. Mm. Um, but okay. I think two thirteen is 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 there or thereabouts. Yeah. So yeah, and also if you're going around a bank bowl at two, anything more than two ten, on the flat, because you know we always mm. must remember that if you're effectively going around a corner, that is that is taking energy out of the car. Yeah. Um, that probably does mean that if you ever found a straight long enough, it probably would do two twenty. Mm. Blimey. So, so 220, the XJ220. Yeah. Did Jaguar effectively make that promise when the car was still going to have a V12? Um, it was still going to be four-wheel drive, wasn't it? Yeah, and I then, mean, I think I think that was always the the intention for it when when they produced that 48-valve V12 four-wheel drive monster at the Birmingham Show in '88. Mm. Um, you know, the clues in the title, isn't it? You know, the yeah. reason that they called those cars. You know, XK120, 140, 150. Well, to, you know, XK150 wouldn't do 150 miles an hour any more than it would jump over the moon. But, you know, that's what clearly it was saying. And although when they showed it originally, they wouldn't, no one would have driven it because I'm not even sure that car had even moved at that stage. Or if it had, it wasn't very fast. Certainly wasn't very fast. Um, you know, they would have, you know, the, they, they would have known the power of the engine. They would have known what the drag was. They could have mm. done the math. They could have worked out that, yeah, that car you know, given the right environment, would have done 220 miles an hour. It's such a bold thing to do, isn't it? Name your car after the top speed you think it will manage. Yes. Even before it's gone out and done it. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's writing a hell of a check. Um, okay, so from the XJ220, we moved to the McLaren F1. Um, I'm not going to get stuck into that now because we're going to bring Andy in shortly. Um, the Veyron did 253 miles per hour. So that is a fairly substantial leap isn't it and 253 i think that is 400 kilometers per hour isn't it so that's a yes it is yeah that's, that's a, a big that's a big landmark that really is a big and that, landmark. And that was that a standard there on that wasn't a super sport um so what this year doesn't was that? well i don't know i mean the veyron is 2005 but actually this doesn't say exactly what year the record was set so i don't know it could have been a bit later on i think that um, sounds like a standard car because i think the super sport you yeah, know, you can well, tell me what a super sport did. It yeah, did, did, so did a in, bit more, didn't it? In 2010, yeah, 267.857. 
So yeah. a hell of a lot faster again. Um, 1,200 horsepower. Bloody hell. 267 miles an hour. Yeah, so actually I did 217. So I wasn't within 50 miles an hour of its top speed. <laughs> <laughs> I was 50 miles an hour shy of what it would do. But you presumably that was done at Aerolessian with the 5.4 mile straight, which helps, yeah, it would it? Be, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yes. Um, um, and, it, and it wasn't done by an idiot who just turned up at an auto car road test and said, can I have a go? <laughs> which is how I did it. I literally, I wasn't even invited. I just turned up because I heard that they were doing it. I hadn't driven the car and I just thought, I'll, um, I'll just pop over and see if I can yeah. get Bloody hell. You know, a, a, quick, a quick run up the runway in it, which I did. So in this modern era, you start getting things like SSC and Hennessy coming in. Um, and it, and Koenigsegg as well. Yeah, I mean, I think they're valid, but quite what constitutes here a production car, it's hard to say, isn't it? Um, but even the Bugatti Chiron, um, the 300 plus, is that a production car? Don't know, really. Um but the point, who cares, really? It did 304.77 miles an hour, again, with Andy yeah. Wallace driving. I mean, um, the, the, the problem, well, I mean, there are a couple of things here, aren't there? I mean, firstly, I mean, okay, fine. I mean, we're on here talking about top speeds of cars, you know, and, we, and we're doing it because we think it's a fun subject. It, we're not doing it because we take these things particularly seriously. No. Because, you know, the fact that these cars do 200 and whatever miles an hour, I mean, you know, who cares? You know, there are many, many more important things than that that, that, that any car needs to do including very fast ones um and the second thing is obviously you know the whole aero thing has happened hasn't it so these days and quite rightly um manufacturers are rather more interested in keeping their cars on the ground than mm. you know seeing how fast they can get them to go mm. so you'll you'll actually find that the top speeds of of most cars you know you take the top speed of i'm just trying to think of some you know modern hypercar it probably won't be an awful lot quicker than the hypercar that company was making 20 years ago yeah um because it'll have a lot more drag these days because it have a lot more downforce which means it's much better at, you know staying on the ground well the um the new lamborghini rev scrambled eggs Rev-Vuel- what's it called Rev-Vuel- 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 that's yeah. Right. yeah which does mean scrambled in i think spanish does it um, okay. <laughs> yeah scrambled egg um so uh yeah so huevos Rev- revuelto is scrambled egg isn't it so it's, uh, it's the Lamborghini scrambled egg. But the point being, <laughs> it's got a thousand horsepower, significantly more than the Aventador. But the top speed is only two hundred and seventeen miles an hour off the top of my head. Um, but I, it, it but, might be uh, that why why does it need to do more? Because it's not going to get anywhere you know, near so, that. Bugatti. So it's doing two hundred and seventeen miles an hour on a thousand horsepower, mm. whereas McLaren F one did yeah. two hundred and forty. Yeah. On 627 horsepower. That is so amazing, on, isn't it? You know, on less than two-thirds of the power. Yeah. Um, and and, and you know, anybody thinking, oh, yeah, but the, the F1 was a really light car, weight math doesn't matter at all at those mm. sorts of speeds. Mm. Um, I, I wonder if Lamborghini has pegged that speed back. Just because, you know, well, maybe it would go on to, to... Probably won't need to because... It does, you know, I suppose it, it depends on the aero. If it's it probably, producing it probably proper downforce... Quite, it then, probably is quite draggy. It probably is producing yeah. proper downforce, which is so much more useful than top speed. Hmm. <laughs> Bloody hell. You have to wonder now where this is all going. I mean, Bugatti has said that it's ducking out of this top speed race now. It's built yeah. a car and sold cars that will do 300 miles an hour. Which, which, is, which is 500 kilometres per hour. So wherever you are in the world... It's a very significant number. It's a nice big... And, 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 and I think they're right, because if you say, 
well, no, we're not ducking out at that stage. Well, then what's the next one? 400 miles an hour? Mm, mm. It, is how- interesting. it is interesting to me that modern road cars now aren't actually going any faster than land speed record cars were going in the 1930s. Well, that's a, it's a very good point. That's something I wanted to bring up, actually, when we bring Andy in. Um, but you're, yeah, you're right. And it's the, so it's a good 90-odd years have passed. And even the fastest road legal cars now are only matching what a land speed record car could do back then. Yeah, and even I Grand don't know if Prix that's car- impressive or not, actually. And even Grand Prix cars in the 30s, you know, in 1937, mm. if you've got C-Type Auto Unions and W125 Mercedes, um, give them a straight long enough, they were all 200-mile-an-hour cars all mm. day long. Phenomenal. Not with Phenomenal. me, but, yeah. No. So where's it going to go? I mean... It, do you know what you should never ever say is that no car will ever go faster because ever is an awfully long time. It is, um, but it's it is sitting here right now. It's very hard to imagine who would try to go faster and why, and perhaps just as significantly where. Um, where? Yeah, I mean but, the, the limits are are so often geographical, aren't they? Yeah, and you know we see the likes of SSC and they're having to do it. They're having to close roads in places like Nevada. Um, those arrow straight roads just because there aren't test tracks available okay there's Aerolessian but you can't I assume you can't just buy your way onto it particularly if you're trying to nick a Bugatti record from under the nose of VW yeah. and, and if you're not at somewhere like Aero then you know you're going around a corner so even if you go to Nardo yeah um, and I've been down to Nardo to do over 200 a couple of times um, in a couple of things and you know, Nardo's got a, a hands-off speed of 150 miles an hour. So that's where the angle of the bank um, cancels out the corner yeah. you're getting around. So you yeah. see, effectively, as far as the car's concerned, you're driving in a straight line at 150. So if you're doing 200, you're actually cornering at 50 miles an hour, which in terms of, mm. you know, drag on your tyres mm. um, and aero and everything else is, is, is significant. So, yeah, and so I think Aero is the only place I know where there is a straight that is that long, that mm. even something like a Chiron can get well, effectively to its top speed. It is outrageous, 300 miles per hour. It'll be interesting to see what Andy thinks of where these top speed records are going to go. In fact, he's here now, so let's bring him in. Andy Wallace, thanks for joining us. Good morning, good to be here. Let me start by reading this Ron Dennis quote to you. Um, This is him explaining how the McLaren F1 record came about. And we're talking about this now because, as we record this, it's exactly 25 years to the day since you drove that McLaren F1 beyond 240 miles an hour. And Ron Dennis said, Last Christmas, one of my son's presents was a copy of the Guinness Book of Records. I was most, I was most surprised to find the F1 was not recognised as the fastest production road car. It seems the original auto car test results were not official, so we decided to implement this programme. So, once again, it comes down to getting your name in the Guinness Book of Records. That's why you found yourself at Air Alessian 25 years ago. Um, what, what are your memories of that day? Well... As it was 25 years ago, I was quite a lot younger, uh, with a smaller <laughs> imagination. <laughs> and um, no, the, the interesting thing, so I, I'd already been racing for a long time at that point, but I'd also raced for McLaren at Le Mans. A couple yeah. of times I raced to McLaren at Le Mans. And um, um, so 
having having raced for I don't know how many years, you kind of in your mind you you you, you get used to doing I don't know two hundred miles an hour, a bit more at Le Mans without the chicanes, yeah. but that that was even longer ago. Um, but when you start going significantly more than two hundred, like and more than say two ten, which is very unusual on any racetrack anywhere in the world, um, suddenly. You're into an area that you have never been before, and it shouldn't be a lot more, should it? It's only what, what is it? Another thirty miles an hour more than mm. two hundred and ten, but it makes a huge difference. Yeah, I bet it so does. So, what I remember um, fr- from the day, first of all, um, everything was done on one day, which, um, with my experience a bit later on, uh, you'll you'll probably see that that's not the case anymore. Um, but uh, yeah, you jump in the car, you press a button, you go, um, you can see from that video that's available on YouTube. Yeah. I wasn't even, you know, I just had a helmet on, but I was just not wearing my normal clothes because it was a normal road car. <laughs> and, and other than obviously, you know, check the tyres and the pressures and everything, did they do anything to the car or was it just, here's the car, off you go, mate? Um, the initial runs, yeah, here's the car, off you go, yeah. And... Um, <laughs> So the the F1 only had 627 horsepower, so it had to be pretty slippery to reach that speed and therefore didn't have an awful lot of downforce. And and, and so in the higher speeds, it definitely started wandering about, around quite a bit. Mm-hmm. So that, that sort of grabs your attention. And again, with a, with a smaller imagination as being younger, you kind of thought, oh, look, it's moving around. Never mind. And of course, <laughs> you, you are in that car reaching far higher speeds than you'd ever reached in the racing F1 GTR at Le Mans, because by the time you were racing those there, there were chicanes. So you probably weren't doing more than 200 and a bit. And also, weren't those, the F1 GTRs, weren't they actually less powerful than the road cars because you had to run them with restrictors? Yeah, that's right. The the way the rules were written, uh, yes, you had to have a restrictor, so they were less powerful. Um, Having said less powerful, so the LM version of the mclaren f1 i believe was around 670 okay you could probably check that out so the race ones i think were around 640 so it was more than the the regular f1 but not as much as the lm but you still weren't driving them at lamore as fast as you drove that road car at aralesian absolutely correct and interestingly um this is um probably the only car that i've noticed it in because it was strictly a, a road car that had gone to Le Mans, all right, albeit with quite a few modifications, but still a road car. Yeah. Um, we we actually used the en- the same engine for the whole year, and the engine went back um, to be checked before the twenty four hours. We then put it in the car for the four hours. It it I guess it had a small a small rebuild or whatever. We did the whole twenty four hours. Then we did the whole rest of the season with that same engine, and it never went back. Oh, so I mean, that's incredible, oh. isn't it? So <laughs> that is an amazing motor. Well, the interesting thing was, um, I'm not going to do the calculation in, in my head quickly, but um, so on the on the straight, we were something like 322 kilometres an hour. So I reckon slightly over 200 miles an hour, maybe in the beginning of the race at Le Mans. And by the end of it, the, the thing was doing 336. So it actually loosened up <sighs> during the race. Now, I've, wow. I've actually seen the opposite happen with some of the race cars I've been driving. There. So it was incredible. Yeah, and then do the rest of the season. So the, talking talking of Le Mans, um, Andy, you you raced at Le Mans twice before the chicanes were put in. You won it in 88 with no chicanes in the Jaguar. Get, get off the top of your head, how fast do you think you were going down there? 220 or something? No, more. Yeah, it was it was definitely more. And um, it's, a, it's an interesting question, that, because, uh, of course, 
we didn't have wheel speed um, in our car at that point. Mm. Um, you certainly couldn't see it on the dash. So it was RPM related. Yeah. Yeah. And because uh, in those days it wasn't strictly possible to get a radial tire to go that fast, we were using radial tires all the year. Um, but at Le Mans, we had to go back to the crossfly tires. Wow. And as you probably, because their their top speed is is a bit higher, but as you probably know, with the crossfly tire, it grows yeah. quite considerably. So its circumference gets bigger. So what I can tell you were we we were geared at Le Mans for two hundred and thirty one, but our estimated top speed was somewhere between two four five and two four eight <coughs> miles an hour. So there's oh. a massive amount of growth on, on the tires, and that's um, almost uh, not not quite. Dragster style, you know, when you watch one of those dragsters yeah, yeah. and the tires go three times. Oh, yeah. Andy, I, I was I was going to ask you about that because uh, one thing that particularly interests me about um, you in that car in that race is, I think before you got in a Group C Jaguar, the car with the highest top speed you'd ever driven was an F3 car. Is that right? Um, Eighty-eight. Yeah, that would be. Ah, I did do. I did do a. F- couple of races in formula 3000 okay but it, but in terms of top speed you were getting into something which was yeah you were you're getting into something which was unlike anything else you'd ever sat in before in your life and you're off down the mall sound at 240 whatever it was and i just wonder whether what, what that what, what, what that must have, because it's not like you that you were you know it was you won your first Le Mans, didn't you well, I mean, I did have a bit of help from a couple of good <laughs> well, indeed, yeah, a but nevertheless, team and a lovely car. But yeah, um, no, it's true. Well, in fact, there, there was uh, usually a test day at Le Mans on, on previous races. And in fact, it's still going on now. Yeah. But in 88, there had been some resurfacing work, I believe, on, on the straight. So there was no test day. So I, I rocked up and I was in one of the official sessions. And I, I remember, go- and again, didn't have a speeder, but I remember going down the straight the first probably once or twice. Uh, and I knew that 6,000 RPM in top was 200 miles an hour. So I, it felt plenty quick enough for me while I was getting used to the track. I'd never driven the track before. So there I was, feathering the throttle at 200 miles an hour going down the straight. And then a Mercedes and a Jaguar went past me like I was tied to a post. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, wow, that's bad. Okay, so the third lap down. Again, not much imagination at that uh, age. So third lap down, I just went wide open. I even actually put my left foot on top of my right foot so it couldn't lift and just sat there. And um, and there you are. You're going down the straight. And it's incredible because on a, on a racetrack, you have uh, – the road is usually cambered slightly to the left or the right to get rid of the water. Sorry. Yeah, on a racetrack. Um, on, a, on the road, it's usually cambered up towards the centre of the road. Yeah, very slightly. Around, you don't yeah. notice it. Yeah, so, so what you do notice, if you're doing north of 240 miles an hour on the straight and then you have a, a slower C2 car, it was in those days, in the way. So as you're getting closer, of course, you're taking the toe from it. And then at some point, you've got to pass this car. So if he's in the left lane and you're in the left lane, as you get closer and closer and closer, you start to steer, no power steering in those days, you start to steer the car to the right to pass it. And the camber is kind of pushing you back. So then you think, right, I'll, I'll sort this out. So you give it a big punch more and as soon as you cross the center crown in the road you're almost on the hard shoulder on the other side (laughs) so you do that a couple of times then you realize all right okay very small movements you know and that's Mm. how you get used to it the other thing is the kink so you would arrive at that the kink on the Mulsanne um probably not 240 but not far away actually probably only a few miles an hour below top speed 
And then as you arrive, you can't actually see round it. And it is literally, <sighs> it's a, rather than turning your, your hands completely, it's almost like an elbow move. If you just flex your right elbow, you go around the corner. But as you're arriving, and especially a couple of times it was sprinkling with rain in the practice sessions, the natural reaction is to lift off. So I'm having this conversation with everybody in the pits. And then Tony Southgate, who, who I always thought his analogies were fantastic. And he said to me, look, um, the reason it's flat through there and you don't need to worry, even if it's raining. He said, um, Think of it while you're while you're at top speed. You've got, uh, I think he said, three and a half, four Granadas balancing on the roof. <laughs> he was talking about the downforce, obviously. So then I'm going down the straight, and I was hoping, I think, I hope those Granadas don't fall off the roof. <laughs> anyway, he was right, and that you know, you whistle through that kink. It's incredible how fast the, you know how fast the car turns and mm. you just goes through. Of course. Am I right in am I right in saying that you knew you got the gearing right when just before you had the brake you saw the change up light come on in in top gear? Actually, that's really good, yeah, because now you've um, jogged my memory. So just before the king, this um, little red light would come on on the on the tack, and I think that was like six seven or six eight something like that. And then without lifting through the kink, you would scrub it off again. Oh, it would go off. Yeah, then it would come back on again just as you went over the the brow of the hill before. Full braking, perfect gearing. I I should have I should have known I should have known you two would get distracted by Le Mans. Sorry, we're sorry, supposed sorry. To be talking about. <laughs> well, hang on, no, because there's you, you mustn't. Um, I know you got you might have a time problem here with this, but you've got to listen to this too. Okay, go on, go on. <laughs> no, because when you um, when the, the situation look when it, with a radial, and and of course, the reason that nobody had built a radial at that point that could go that fast is because it wasn't necessary. But a bit later on, as you'll see, you know, this is becoming necessary and it is possible to do it. But if a radial fails, generally the sidewall is what fails and the main body of the tyre, depending on how fast you go, could stay on the rim or should stay on the rim. So when a cross ply fails, what actually happens is the plies, um, they, they, get, they get very hot, especially if you had a slow puncture you didn't know about. They get very hot and then you, you get like a very small piece of rubber sticking up which then makes a sort of a slap, slap, slap sound as it goes round. You get a little bit of a vibration. You lose about 100 RPM, and then a big piece of tail comes off. And then as that's turning, the next revolution, it goes round and it takes the wing off. So when you get a puncture, usually the car is upside down at that point. So this is a a massive problem. And and the biggest um, danger is a slow puncture, and there were no tyre pressure sensors in those days. What we did have was these heat spies, infrared heat spies that looked at the tyre on the outside, middle and inside. And basically, if you saw the temperature going up, because you never, ever felt a puncture, this was the issue. You've been on the straight for quite a long time and the heat buildup from the slow puncture pumps the tyre back up, if you like. But the tyre is getting hotter and hotter and hotter until it finally lets go. So these things were supposed to tell you, OK, one tyre is getting hot. So that must be the, the issue or it could be the issue. These were fitted to win Percy's car in 1987 when he had his puncture and his flip over by the kink upside down, skidding along on the roof. And that was because it had rained earlier and some dirt had got on the sensors, uh-huh. you know, like little cameras. And of course, it didn't read it. So so it wasn't full, foolproof, but you had 50 odd seconds of wide open throttle, which in a racing car is very, very unusual. And those 50 odd seconds, the number of times it goes through your mind like... Um, I wonder if the bulb's broken, so because oh. this light would flash if it was uh, getting too hot, or I wonder if there's some dirt on the lenses, oh. and, and because you don't feel it. So, um, oh, wow, yeah, Blimey. but it's interesting. <laughs> 
So, Aralesian, um, 25 years ago today, what were your main concerns? Were you, what was on your mind? Were you thinking tyres? Were you thinking uh, entering the banking at the end of the straight? Were you thinking lifting off at very high speed? What, what was your main concern? I, I, I was also wondering, Andy, at that sort of speed, I mean, you must have been a distance into the red on the engine, because I don't think it was geared to do those sort of speeds, wasn't it? Did you have to sort of take the limiter off or something? I guess as it's 25 years ago, yeah, we can probably talk about it now. But yeah, of course, yeah, the first run I did, I and again, it, it, everything was reading in kilometres. I think it was about 372. Um, and our our top speed in the end, one direction was 391. So yeah, around 372, it bumps into the rev limiter in top gear. So um, BMW were there looking after the engine. Gordon Murray was there. Um, and so after that and it literally was the first run i bumped straight into it um and it, i actually didn't even know what it was at the time it suddenly bump, bump, bump. um so they lifted it up a thousand rpm and sent me back out we did a few more runs um it's it's um eight and a half kilometers long between the banking so five and a half miles and so for only 240 is what i'm going to say now you've actually got quite a lot of um space Mm. Um, you can you've got time to get to Vmax and and sit there for a while and time to slow down before the banking. So it, it wasn't such an issue um, as it was a bit later on, three years ago, for example. Yeah, we're going to, well, we're going to talk about that in a minute. We'll come we? on to that. Yeah. So the the numbers I've got here was that the the rev limiter was raised from seven and a half to eight three, um, just to give you give you that bit more top end. Um, and I think you you've said in the past that. One concern was that if you just step off the throttle once you'd once you wanted to start slowing down, you get a load of engine braking, and at that sort of speed, that could destabilise the car. Um, no, it's nothing to do with engine braking. It's just okay. it's just aero platform. Right. So when you know all of these forces, anything that's rotating, aerodynamic, they're all exponential growth in forces. Mm-hmm. So a square of the speed. So the difference yeah. between two hundred and two forty is massive. Yeah. So. Um, if you're wide open on the throttle, right, you haven't got a lot of um, acceleration at this point, but still you've got some squat at the back. So the back's lower than it would be if you were stood still. So if you lift off the throttle and or jump on the brakes, you'll get weight transfer to the front. You'll also get um, some aero load gaining because the front's got a bit lower. The back's raised up, so you'll lose some on the back and then you'll be, yeah, you'll be in a whole world of trouble. It'd be a tank Mm. slapper in a car. Um, so, yeah, you do everything gently. Now, the McLaren did have um, a small air brake. So, in fact, what the best thing to do was, um, before lifting, just tap the brake with your left foot to get the air brake up and then gently lift off. Uh, and that, that takes some of the, the rake change away. See, that that is a very good example of how much driving it took from you to achieve that record. It's not just pointing it down a straight and keeping your foot flat, is it? It takes proper driving and on the in car it does look like the car's moving around a little bit side to side you're making some steering inputs yeah it is and uh, i mean yes of course you, you the driver's got to do the work but to be brutally honest with all these things i mean you know driver's useless without a car you're useless without the right tires and and everything else so i think probably the easiest bit of all is the bit the driver does if we're being honest <laughs> but it's not nothing you know yeah, I mean, yeah. you've got to <laughs> You know, you've got to keep this thing, uh, yeah, pointing point in the right direction. There's also a danger um, that you could have a, an instantaneous um, loss of tyre pressure. And those kind of situations, you know, that's, that's an instantaneous cut on the tyre. Mm-hmm. That situation, if it's a rear tyre, 
can can cause all sorts of issues. Um, I mean, first of all, you would lose rear rake and therefore gain front rake. So yeah. you have a possibility that the car could take off. Um, and then obviously there's this whole thing. It'll be moving around and whatever correction you try to to make, um, you'll never keep up with it because you're going so fast. And this is the thing. So you're going to slap the barrier somewhere. So so it is it is a problem. So and again, no tire pressure sensors on, on the F1. In fact, no power steering, no power brakes, no ABS, no traction control. Um, just in those days, in, in you know, in when, when that car was produced and, and sold, that was acceptable. And, and nobody knew any different. And, and why would you why would you question it? And I'd come from, you know, Group C cars where they didn't have any of that either. So it felt normal. Mm. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, as you fast forward, those, those things change. Everything changes. Um, so before we talk about the, the Bugatti and how much it changed, um, there are a couple of quotes. So Gordon Murray on that day in 1998 said, I wouldn't mind making a little wager that this remains the record speed for a true production car for a very long time. There's another quote from a certain Andy Wallace. Who, who, this is while you're still in the car. Clearly, you've just set the record. You're clearly quite jubilant. I still say this is the best car ever built ever and probably will never be beaten. I know that's great, isn't it? I, I, <laughs> I've seen that too. So, so you should never believe what I say. Um, no, but it, it was an amazing car um, yeah. and, and is an amazing car. But something that you can absolutely guarantee is that nothing stands still. Yeah. And, you know, and we're, we're all we're in love with cars, aren't we? I mean, that's the whole reason we do any of this. Yeah. And the motor industry is absolutely brilliant and mm. progress, solving problems, whatever obstacles you throw in its way, it comes out with the answer. And and it hasn't stopped. And if anything, it's accelerated. Yeah. Especially recently. Well, so how about this for a problem? 300 miles an hour, 500 kilometers per hour. Um, imagine trying to solve that one. And of course, who do they turn to? Well, you, Andy. So Bugatti built this very exclusive vers- version of the Chiron, um, about 1,600 horsepower, different low-drag aero body. Um, and in 2019, back at ERA, you you managed 304.77 miles per hour. That's faster. That That's 304.7724. <laughs> if you do this properly, you need to make the full number. Uh, there we go. Thank you for putting me right. But nevertheless, that's still faster than Malcolm Campbell ever went when he was repeatedly breaking the land speed record. Um, it's 25% faster than you went in the F1. So a huge margin. What Was it actually easier though in that car, the Bugatti? Oh, definitely not. <laughs> I'm, I'm still um, receiving my last few um, psychiatric. How, so can, can, I, can I just jump, Andy, sorry, can I, can I just jump in here before we, we sort of get into the, um, exactly what that was like. Can, can you just talk to us a little bit about the difference in the way the two companies approached that because as you said mclaren was i'm sure they were very professional and, and everything else but it, you know you had a day to do it whereas presumably the preparation that well volkswagen and bugatti did in terms of you know checking the track and doing the car and your practice rounds presumably that was a very different sort of build-up to it um yes and um but it's not just company though it's also the, the extra speed the extra speed creates so many problems. And as everything's exponential, as you, as you say, it's, it's a, it, you're moving to another area, which is incredibly 
difficult. And if you if you if somebody goes another 20, 30 miles an hour faster than that again, they've got those other problems to solve. So um, uh, before the McLaren, I actually did that run at the Jaguar XJ220 in Fort Stockton in Texas at 217. Oh, that was you. We were talking about that before you came on. I put it. I thought it was Martin in the car. It was you. Yeah, Martin did it at Nardo at 213. Oh, okay. can, can, can you can you confirm them? Because was, I was speculating. Did they take the cats off the car for that run? Oh, blimey, I don't remember that. Oh, okay. I don't think so. Okay. And, and do you know what tyres? Were you on road tyres or racing tyres? No, no, it was it was road tyres. And, it, and yeah. in fact, um, they, it was Bridgestone um, at the time. And I mm. had some issues with the car wandering around a lot, um, around about 210 miles an hour. So I took the the engineer from, from Bridgestone with me. It was a guy called Kawabata-san. And put him in the passenger seat, went down the straight. And as soon as it started moving around, he was like, well, waving his arms and legs about telling me to stop. <laughs> um, we, we came back into the pits and he stuck the tyres on the um, wheel balancing machine and then took a hot knife and took off a, a millimetre of tread off all the tyres, put them back on and, and the problem went away. Wow. Uh, it was obviously it was tread block moving and he, and he knew that. So, wow. yeah, I remember that well. So that was, yeah, 217 okay, or so- something like that. Yeah, back to the Bugatti. Yeah, so back to the Bugatti. So, so um, of course, um, being Bugatti and and everything they do, they 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 do it properly. So, um, they assembled a really good team of people. They'd already done with Michelin. They'd already gone to the machine that was testing the space shuttle tires um, in the US, and and the game um, Michelin are also people that have what they do, they always make sure that the product they give you is going to do the job. So when they went there with the standard shear on tyre, they came back and they said, okay, those tyres could reach the VMAX of the Supersport, the shear on Supersport, but it's too close for us. So we're not, we're not happy. So they then produced a a different tyre. And so before the last layer of rubber goes on to the tyre, under that, there are some metal strands radially around quite a lot of these things they're very very thin uh, and then the last layer of rubber goes on and they're obviously to try and keep the tire in shape uh, as, as the forces build up um, so what they did was they replaced these metal strands with stronger ones but didn't weigh anymore because you don't want the tire to weigh anymore that increases the load so once they did that then the the layer of tire goes uh, rubber goes on the top they retested the tire they were happy with the results and so that tire had to be homologated um, and then that is the homologated tire for the Supersport and the Supersport 300 Plus, because it has to be an homologated tire if you're going to do this properly. Because it has to be a completely le- road legal car at the time you do it. Yeah, because the thing is, if you if you do it with a, a racing tire or something like that, a racing tire is only designed for one thing. But of course, a road tire has got so many different facets that it needs to yeah. conquer mm. to to be any good on the road. So so yeah, so it was a fully homologated tire. So um, the other thing that they did do. Um, which, which um, you know, this was, again, for, for, for a safety reason. If you x-ray, every single tyre they make is x-rayed anyway. But the, if you then do another x-ray afterwards and you look at these metal strands that go all the way around, they're very, very fine strands. There are places around the tyre where it's possible that two of these strands could just momentarily touch inside the tyre. Um, and then... A lot of tyres don't have that. So what they did, they x-rayed all the ones we were going to use and picked ones where there was absolutely no touching of these metal strands. 
Oh, they're fine. Wow. They're absolutely fine. But it's just another. If you if you're trying to reach a world spec, uh, speed record, I should say, you just want to take away any possibility that that you know there could be a hot spot there from this touching. Right. So that's what yeah. they did, and they delivered the sets of tires. Um, then that's the first um, issue, I guess. And then the second issue, which is which is a really really big thing at that speed, and that's keeping the car on the ground. So. Um, what Muslim asked us was, could you, um, you know, because the car's got active aero anyway, the standard road car, it's got uh, two hydraulically operated flaps in the front diffuser to change the front aero. And then, of course, the rear wing is active. So what they wanted was us to be in the high speed mode with the minimum downforce. And they were they were asking us to try to shoot for zero front, zero rear. So effectively just the static weight of the car holding the car down and the reason for that is if you increase the downforce of the car you decrease the um you increase the load on the tires and decrease its top speed before it, yeah. you run into an issue so that was the the plan so as you probably know yourself this number is not um it's not a static number so if you put the car on the ground and it's sat at the correct ride height and you fit load sensors on the car, you can see exactly what the load is on front and rear. You've got the static load. If you then drive at, say, 100 kilometers an hour, um, that will begin to change. So even if it's zero, zero front, as the speed increases, what generally happens is you get more downforce on the back and you get lift on the front. So what we did when we first arrived was, after doing just a few housekeeping things, was do many, many, many runs at incrementally faster speeds checking the load front to rear. Ah, okay. And this was um, uh, as a full, almost a full week program wow. Uh, wow. of doing this. So in the beginning, you're, you're really only running up to 250K, so 155 miles an hour. And at that, we were still seeing quite a change from the static load um, beginning to get lift on the front. And then because it's a square of the speed exponential growth, you can, you can kind of calculate where it's going, but you've got to back that up with um, more runs at higher speed. So a run would consist of um, increasing the speed in increments and then holding that for 10 to 15 seconds. And then you could probably do another one because you've got enough space on the straight. So with all this going on, the last data point is 450 kilometers an hour, which is 280 miles. So that's the last time you can do 10 to 15 seconds at that speed without running out of space. <laughs> So that's your last data point. And then at that point, you can, uh, I, know, I know the numbers, it was something like 100, and, I think it was 186 kilos of lift on the front. And so you can say, okay, and that's less, of course, than the static weight of the car. But as you extrapolate that up to 300 and whatever it's going to be, that number is increasing quite a lot. <laughs> so I'm sure it was perhaps north of 300 kilos of lift at the front by the time you got to the top speed. So all these things have to be very, very, very carefully checked. So we had the aerodynamicist there. We had an mission there with the tires. We had the engine people, everybody there. Um, and bit by bit by bit, from a driver's point of view, you have to be very patient and just mm. do what you're asked to do and no more and come back and report back. And then everybody dives into the computer. And, and has a look so, so 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 it's not a case of having a warm-up runner then hoofing it is it there's a bit more prep involved no and this is the problem because you know you don't feel it so i've i've uh, i mean i had mm. a car um in Mossport in in canada and i think it was 2003 uh it was an lmp car uh, flipped over backwards um and you oh, have right. and what i can tell you from that is you have no feeling you're driving along driving along driving along 
sky upside down crashing on the ground bits everywhere so there's not something that you can feel from the seat of the the pants um it just happens and it's very very quick um it starts very slow and then it's very quick so it has to be done properly with with science and Mm. technology um so that's that the second one is um at airports they clean the runway with these enormous great mats that they tow behind trucks so they it's a 20 kilometer lap in aerolysine uh, in total they so they spent five hours cleaning the entire 20 kilometer lap with these massive machines to make sure there's no stones or pebbles or anything or bits of twig that's on the road that you could run over and get a puncture with um and then nobody else was allowed on the track so there's all this preparation going on uh, another peculiarity with this track which i did notice with the mclaren a little bit too is there are trees pretty much all the way down the left side on, on the main uh, straight but there are some gaps in the trees on the right side and so they've uh, got wind socks all the way down and quite often in in the gaps you can see the wind socks blowing quite strongly so your your reaction is as you as you get towards that cutting in the trees you kind of lean in towards oh. the, the direction of the wind wind sock and, and you try and sort yourself out so during a lot of these runs there was quite a strong side wind and i did have quite a number of problems um with the wind um, yeah i know and it's it's weird and then the other thing to say is that although it's eight and a half kilometers long the five and a half miles long you need more than a mile to slow the car back down to the banking speed, which we were, I'm sorry, I'm uh, swapping between miles and kilometers. It was all in kilometers. So the banking entry speed should be no more than 220 Ks. So, so in order to get from VMAX back down to 220 Ks, yes, it's over a, a mile. V- VMAX being f- over 500 Ks. Uh, well, over 300 miles an hour. So, yeah, I mean, 304.7724, 490.4837 kilometers. Oh, okay. 490. Yeah, there you go. Okay. So, so yeah. So, so um, and in actual fact, at that point, the car was still uh, accelerating. We hadn't, you know, it's just not long enough um, to, to reach the real VMAX. I don't know where the real VMAX would have been. But in any case, you need quite some time to slow it down. Mm-hmm. So, so all of these, you know, runs that you do, and then to throw another spanner in the works, the the first part. So you can't do the speed in the two directions because on the uh, return leg from the banking back to the banking where you started, there is a big dog leg in the track. So you've got a corner right in the middle. So you can't do it there. And also the the track is homologated. All the barriers, the Armco overlap, is all designed in FIA spec to be going in one direction so you can't come in the other direction you'll have a problem and all the tarmac the tracks used in one direction all the time and all the tarmac is pushed over in one direction so if you go in the other direction you heat the tires up massively and you'll have a problem so that's why it was was one direction. So, so in in the f1 did you do the return leg through the dog leg yes slightly curves oh my god but you can get the speed before you reach the corner in the dog yeah. leg. big again because it's a lower speed yeah. So, so this was why. Now, so what I was going to say, sorry, um, you won't shut me up once you start me talking about this, but um, their track had been resurfaced, um, half of it. So as you come round banking, then you start the straight. It's um, probably a kilometre or so down there, and then it stops being the new surface and goes back to the old surface. And there is a step in in this and it's not a step you can feel if you drive your rental car or you drive slowly you can't feel the step but there is a step 
So every time I was crossing over this, I was referring to it as the jump, <laughs> you know, and I was um, going over it about um, two in miles, probably about 260 miles an hour over this over this jump, let's say. And I come back and I go, yeah, it was all OK, but it's a bit iffy when you go over the jump. And, they, and then, they know, hang on a minute. What, what do you mean jump, jump? Why are you calling it the jump? I said, you know, the join in the tunnel, that's not a jump. So they're looking through the data. Yep, you're absolutely right, it's a jump. Oh, my God. <laughs> just a momentary thing. but and, and after you've gone over it, when it lands, if you don't lose control too badly at that point, it gives you a bit of confidence that you can, you know, so you're not going to lift to go over it, obviously. Um, so you've got all these things going on. And then we did the, the speed on the 2nd of August uh, 2019, which is a Friday. On the Thursday, I had multiple times reached about 483 kilometers an hour, which, if you calculate that into miles, I think is 299.8. And um, and what happened each time? Well, um, get to that speed. I start to get a lot of movement on the car, which is getting worse and worse and worse. And then you have this horrible feeling in your stomach that actually what you're doing in the car the reaction to what you do is exactly not what you think and now you've not got control of the car and it's all going to go bad and it's going to it's going to happen so i i lifted off um and and slowed down somewhere between 10 and 15 times on this thursday and then i kept coming back to the pits and i go look guys i i can't the, the car's just not stable enough to do the speed there was a lot of crosswind and i have to say the there's the wind socks were pretty much across vertically um anyway so then they kept saying uh, well all right well what do you what do you want what do you want us to do what what's wrong and i tried to explain everything i thought there was something a bit strange in the back but it was also coming from the steering um anyway they 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 sort of all had a head scratch and it turns out one of the other things which is creating an issue is the 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 weight of the wheel spinning the front wheels more than anything spinning at that speed is so high that the gyroscopic effect of the wheels going around is enough to overcome the suspension geometry if you can believe so so the only way to fix that would be to put a lighter front wheel on Uh, and again um, we 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 had to use the standard wheels so we used the standard wheel ironically the the wheel um the wheel that is now going out on on the super sport is is very very slightly lighter so it would have helped if we'd have had that wheel but it wasn't available at the time um so and this issue what how how you feel this issue is that um, once it's overcome the suspension geometry normally the self-centering that you get with any car it becomes the opposite of that almost it's like if you release your grip it turns and and you need the grip to, to to pull it back and also if the wind blows you to the left and you add a little bit of lock to the right the car starts to go right, but it keeps going and you need another input to, to pull it back. So you end up doing multiple micro movements on the steering wheel to, to go straight. And eventually it spooks you. And, you, and also you're getting behind it. It's like a towing a caravan in the crosswind. It's getting worse and worse and worse and worse. Anyway, so this is Thursday and, uh, and then it started to get dark and everything. And, and, and I, I also I, I realized in my mind, too, that they don't really know me that well i mean i've been working in bugatti a long time but it could just be that i i haven't got the bottle to do it mm. and i was thinking to myself that's maybe what somebody is thinking in you know <laughs> I, I keep coming back saying Look, i can't do it I, I, <laughs> I get to that speed and i can't do it 
And then somebody said, well, we can't have a, you know, a hypercar that goes 299.8 will be the laughing stock of the world, you know. So anyway, um, so I, I pointed them to the back of the car and the poor guy sp spent all night, Thursday night, never left the track. And they were checking every single thing. And they did find a, a difference between the left and right side in the toe, toe in, minuscule. And I think there was uh, maybe a bit of movement on one of bushes or whatever. Anyway, they did that. And then in the morning, um, they then reflashed the steering program again into the car. Um, and then they thought that that, it, to them, it seemed like it looked better. And um, so they said, look, go and do a, just go and do a slow run and see what you think. And a slow run always was you leave the parking lot, you stick the cruise control on at 200 Ks, 125 miles an hour, and you just do a 20 kilometer lap. And you, during that time, you can, you can viciously swerve about and just feel what you've got. And, and to be honest, I, I thought to myself, this actually feels better. It really does. Um, so we came back in and they said, well, what do you want to do? And I was looking up at the windsocks and they were almost completely pointing down. Not much wind at all, if any. And so I said, well, just put some fuel in it and let's go and have a go. <laughs> so and that's how it happened. So then Friday morning, I'm, I'm in the car. You get sweaty palms like you've never had before, of course. Um, and then you, you set off out the parking lot again. And it was always a full lap on the cruise control to stabilize all the temperatures. So you go out and down the straight, round the banking, down the other straight. And then you're approaching the final banking before the section where you're going to do the speed. And it's it's the it's the oddest feeling ever, you know, because you know what you've got to do. And, you know, you're, you're thinking it'll be fine. It'll be fine. <laughs> but you don't know that. So. Normally, the, we, we try to hold between 200, 220 on the banking. And what I was doing was keeping the cruise control on, going from seventh down to fourth onto the banking, and then keep looking to find the exit of the banking. And as soon as you see the exit, just gently accelerate more. And the idea is not to exceed too much speed on the banking because of the extra load you're putting on the tires. It's quite steep. Well, on this last lap, I thought, right, well, I'm going to go early because I, I need the space as well because we're running out of space each time. So I reckon when it came off the bank in it, it actually had a massive squirm at the back. So I reckon uh, it was about 260 or 265 cases it came off the bank in, which is pretty monster. And then it was flat and straight and I was wide open. And where everybody was stood on the um, up against the fence, I'd been passing them at 428. And this particular time, because I came off the bank in earlier and got it wide open, I passed them at 438. Oh. And I thought, Okay, um, um, this is going to be amazing. This is going to be amazing. So then I got to the um, the jump, which was at 4.47. I went over the jump, which is just short of 280. And when it landed, I felt like I was in control. I probably wasn't, but it felt not too bad. So then I just kept my foot in it and pinned it, pinned it, pinned it, pinned it, pinned it. And and there was some movement. And if you, if you see on the video, it, it looks so... Easy on the video. I, I watched that and it doesn't, you don't get any of the feel from it at all. Um, and in fact, the only camera that was real in, in the footage that they show is the one that was in the car because we, we couldn't find anything to go fast enough to film us. Um, so we had to do it the following weekend at a lower speed. But yeah. the actual camera in the car was real. And if you watch um, that, that block um, on the window, the, the, the display that's got speed on it, if you look at the, the display, you'll see a white line on the right and a white line on the left. And you'll see that these white lines, the distance between that and the screen is different. And in some cases, it disappears altogether. So it was moving, but it was actually staying in 
one lane. And then I got past this 483 and then it was keeping going, keeping going, keeping going, keeping going. And then it got to 490. And at this point, I thought I was, I know we'd, I know we'd done over 300 miles an hour, but at that point you start looking at the other end and it looks like you're almost there. I mean, <laughs> it's coming at you so quickly. We're talking about 140 meters per second. This car is going. And, yeah. um, and so I, at the point where I thought I can't do it any longer, I, I gently lifted off the throttle and I started just to go on the brake and just pull a bit of speed off. And they told me 220, 220. So an odd thing from, from 490, um, it, once you slow down 100 kilometers off of that, it feels like you stopped. Mm. So I started to feel, oh, everything's fine. It's all great. Banking was almost there. Then I looked back up at the screen and it said 362. So then I thought, oh, I've got a bit more work to do. So I was humping on the brake for all I was worth <sighs> and um, then managed to get it slowed down enough to go around the banking. Blimey, Andy. I'd, I'd, I totally underestimated all that. I, you just assume that with modern technology, all that power, a big four-wheel drive car, that it, it does the work for you. But actually, hearing you talk about it, it's quite clear that it's one of the bravest things anyone has ever done in a car in the name of going fast it's unbelievable well i mean first of all i think you're too kind but i mean it was yeah it was a bit of a <laughs> you had to clench everything up yeah. but i think the thing with anything though it, whatever the number is whatever the speed is if you're approaching the maximum that any car can do or any machine can do you're you're it's not going to be a walk in the park, is it? Yeah. So whatever that yeah. number is. You're, you're on the limit, yeah. You're on the limit, yeah, exactly. So but what just happens to happen now is that limit is very, very high for a road car. Um, but, you know, I'm sure somebody will beat it eventually. It's not, you know, these things always get beaten. Well, do you, do you think that's you done with very high-speed exploits or if someone knocks on your door? I, as soon as I got out afterwards, I said it was done. But if, uh, the, the passage of time is a fantastic thing. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm probably too stupid to, to say no if somebody asked me. But um, what I should have said to you was uh, also uh, Aerolacine is not far above sea level. Mm-hmm. And I, if you remember, um, Koenigsegg went to this road in Nevada, which is about 12 miles long, public road. And it was, at, I think, something like 1,600 metres above sea level. So, okay, so the air is a lot thinner, so you've got less drag, um, et cetera, et cetera. You would have less power, although with a turbocharging engine, the turbos can um, get that back. So what Bugatti did, just for their own peace of mind, not to shout or scream or anything, they took the data from our run, took it to one of the professors in the university in Germany, and just said, look, run the numbers and tell us how fast the car would go at 1,600 metres altitude. And they came back with a speed of something, I think it was 513 kilometers an hour. So, but there's no way for us to safely do it on a road like that because you've got no, no no chance of uh, keeping that piece clean. You've a wild Mm. animal could run across anything that happened to you. um, Like, I mean, a puncture at that speed, you, if it was a rear puncture, the car would drop down at the back and the car would fly. End of, that's it. That's how it works. Blimey. So, well, so they, they're confident that the car would do 500, but practically making it happen is another matter, isn't it? Um, it's difficult on that track. So, so, and I, I like the track. It's, you know, it's beautifully made and it's safe and all, but you would need, I don't know, you'd, you'd need a bunch more horsepower because the idea, you need to get to the speed as quick as you can to give you enough space to get to, to yeah, yeah. such a high speed. Um, Andy, we, we could listen to you talk about this stuff all day long, um, but... We're running out of time, so we have to leave it there. 
Um, but honestly, hearing you talk about it, it is quite staggering. So bravo. It's an extraordinary thing that you've, you've achieved there. And I, I'm just grateful that we get to hear it from you. Yeah, and Andy, Andy, thank you, thank you so much for coming on. Um, it's 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 because I, I thought you were going to say, oh no, three hundred in a in a uh, in a share on a walk in the park compared to two hundred and forty in a McLaren, but clearly it isn't. Um, and and I'd never I'd not heard that insight and just just what it required. So you know, so hats off to you. Um, I, for, for myself, I think three hundred for me, three hundred would be a nice nice big round number to uh, to sign off at. But um, yeah, if you do go faster, come back on and tell us about it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't know where it's going because um, I think initially with um, electrification, you've got an issue getting to such a high speed because you need to do it in a quick enough time that you don't overheat all the other bits. But that doesn't mean to say in the future it's not possible. I'm I'm sure it will be. Wow. Well, extraordinary stuff. Andy, thank you so much. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.